This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The term GOAT in sports means greatest of all time. It's currently associated with Tom Brady in the NFL. Many people use that tag for Michael Jordan in basketball, Wayne Gretzky in hockey. But being the greatest of all time doesn't necessarily lead you to championships. It did in the case of those three gentlemen, though. But success as a team does have one incontrovertible characteristic. Teams that win usually have a great captain, someone who steers the ship through tough times and can be counted on pretty much all of the time. Sam Walker, who's deputy editor for Enterprise at the Wall Street Journal, looks at the greatest teams of all time, not only here in the United States, but around the world, and the greatest captains as well in his new book, The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. And Sam joins us on the phone right now. Sam, welcome. Dan, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Great to have you with us. This is this is fun book for me to go through, I, being my background in sports, so I, I'm going to have fun with this one. Um, I, I guess first let's start with the idea to do a book like this, and then we can get into the criteria of actually picking the teams and picking these captains. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't supposed to be a book, yeah. really. I mean, I, I started this off as a column for the Wall Street Journal, and you know, the question was uh, a pretty basic one that I'd never really considered. It's what is it? What's the magic ingredient that helps a team become enduringly successful? And it all really started in 2004 with the Boston Red Sox, and I'm sure you remember this team. <laughs> yes. The Idiots, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this, this was a team that, you know, went on to break the great curse and to win the World Series and take down the Yankees in that epic yep. ALCS. And we'll remember them forever as one of the great teams of the 20th century. But what, what's surprising and what really struck me, and I spent a lot of time with it, that team that season uh, as I was writing my, my first book, and I noticed something early on in spring training. They just, I'd been around a lot of elite sports teams, and they just were not one of them. They didn't have the vibe that all great teams seemed to have. They yeah. seemed undisciplined, unserious. You know, they were, it was kind of like a frat house. I mean, it was a, a sort of strange environment. And, you know, I never really thought they were contenders. And, you know, in July, they fell nine and a half games behind the Yankees and were basically left for dead. And, you know, I assumed that my first impressions had been correct. But in August, something happened inside that team. And all of a sudden, they had this swagger and, and they played with confidence and they were toughing out big games. And, and they went on to, to become, you know, a great team. And what I realized at that point was that my entire sports writing career, I'd seen a lot of great teams, but I'd already, I'd seen them once they'd already become elite. And I'd never seen the moment where that transition happened. And that's what I wanted to explore. I just wanted to figure out what is it? What's that spark? What's the thing that allows a collective group to, um, to change itself and and to morph into uh, a a unit that that does great things. And And, that was really the the beginning of it. And and again, I mentioned at the top, uh, uh, this is a book not just about U.S. sports, but sports on a global perspective, because these type of characteristics, that transition can happen, whether it be in soccer played over in Europe. You, you talk a good bit about rugby as well. Uh, Aussie rules football. Each one of these sports probably has one or two of these stories through the course of, of their period of time. That was the idea. So what I decided to do was to try to study this. I knew I needed a, a sample. I needed a, a group of teams that I could use as a, 
uh, as an empirical uh, study sample. So w- what I decided to do is to try to figure out, well, what are the greatest teams of all time? And so, of course, the first thing I did is, well, what anyone would do, I Googled it, you know, and yeah. I looked up every list that had ever been made, and I realized quickly that it was a really sorry lot. I mean, most of the, the lists that have been compiled were really subjective or weren't based on, on any kind of serious methodology. And, you know, beyond that, if you were in England, it was all English soccer. And if it was, yeah. you're in the U.S., it's all the Yankees and, and Red Sox and, and Lakers. So uh, what I did was I, I realized quickly that there were no shortcuts. What I wanted to do was find the real outliers, the freak teams that had done things in their sports that no other team had ever done. And I realized there could only really be one or maybe two teams like that in any given sport. So I realized I had to cast the widest possible net. And in the end, I looked at every single winning team in every 37 different categories of sports since the 1880s. And it was just a a massive dive into the uh, records of sports. And, uh, you know, I developed a methodology which consisted of eight tests that any team would have to pass. And in the end, you know, I, I there were a lot of teams, about 122 teams that I thought were truly elite. Yeah. And of that group, only 16 I thought were absolutely, unambiguously outstanding freak outlier teams. And those were the ones that I used as my study sample. And, and again, these are you're not looking at one season where a team was you know was special. You're talking about an extended period of time. Like you mentioned, the San Antonio Spurs of the NBA and what they have done basically up till now over the last what almost 20 years or so is they have had a level of play uh that has you know been almost unparalleled in the nba completely unparalleled i mean it's amazing they made the playoffs in 19 straight seasons and they won five titles and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in the league by far i mean it's just something that's completely unprecedented and i don't think we'll ever be matched. So that was the idea. See, I realized early on that what I wanted to study was um, culture and a team culture that uh, endured and that succeeded. So one of the parameters was that the team had to have achieved dominance for at least four seasons. And that really weeded out a lot of teams, a lot of one-year wonders and three-peats and things that uh, were definitely great. But, you know, what I was really after was I want to rule out the, the uh, the influence of luck. You know, I think you know a team can get lucky and win a championship or even two, but I think to be dominant and great for four years, I really think you have to have something more. You have to have a uh, a chemistry, something uh, intangible about the group that allows it to succeed. We're talking with uh, Sam Walker, who is the author of the book The Captain Class. This is Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. All right, so uh, let's get into some of these teams, and and I'm going to start outside the U.S. Because I follow soccer, and and you mentioned uh, two, you know, pretty elite clubs. I mean, one being Barcelona and what they have done uh, over a you know four or five year period, late two thousands into into the two thousand teens, and obviously with the, the shift that they have done. But also, if people think international soccer, Brazil and the tradition that they had back in the day was was just phenomenal. Yeah, no, those two teams were amazing. I mean, soccer was definitely the toughest sport for me to study because it's so dispersed. I mean, you know, yeah. these, these club teams don't play each other with great regularity. And 
Uh, the, the international game was a lot easier. But, yeah, those were two. It's funny. There were a lot of dynasties that um, made the list. I mean, you mentioned Brazil and Barcelona, um, you know, the Yankees, the Celtics, the Pittsburgh yeah. Steelers. But, you know, what was interesting about it was when, the, when these teams started their streaks, most of them hadn't, weren't dynasties. I mean, yeah. this was kind of the beginning of it. Uh, so, yeah, no, there were some familiar names uh, there, definitely, and those two teams were phenomenal what they accomplished. But, you know, there were also a lot of teams that I didn't know, really, or hadn't known about. And my yeah. favorite uh, example, I think, is the greatest Olympic team of all time. And I had no idea that this was the case, but it's the Cuban women's volleyball team yeah. from, from 1990 to 2000. They basically won every major tournament for 10 years. I mean, they were completely unstoppable, you know, from a small poor, repressed nation of nine million. They dominated the world for a decade, which is just astonishing. <laughs> well, one of the other ones you put in, which it's just a, not a sport that most Americans would be following, is international men's handball. <laughs> yeah. and, and the fact that France, I guess, kind of fell into the same category as Brazil with women's volleyball in that they basically they, they won everything for, what, about an eight-year period? Astonishing. I mean, they just were absolutely by far the best team that, in that history of that sport. And, you know, and handball is a tough one. I mean, Americans don't know anything about handball, but, you know, it's a hugely popular sport in Europe. I mean, I think the, the World Championship final gets 125 million TV viewers. I mean, it's a big, big sport over there. And uh, so, you know, I decided not to uh, – you know, I think a lot of these lists were really parochial, you know, and yeah. I think uh, I think in order to do this right and to do it in an empirical and objective way, you really you can't be selective. You really have to look at every major sport in the world and try to find those outlier teams. And some sports don't have them. You yeah. know, cricket, for example, I don't think it's uh, I wasn't able to really decide that there was one cricket team that was the greatest team of all time. So they're not included. But. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the idea is a lot of scientific studies, I think they tend to cast out the outliers and they, yeah. they really focus on, on the average, you know, the, the good teams and they, they, they don't pay attention to the freak performances. But I thought, look, let's, let's round up all the freak teams and see if they have anything in common. You mentioned the Yankees, but not the Yankees that a lot of people listening to us will remember, the ones, you know, late 90s into early 2000s. You talk about uh, the Yankees back in the 40s and early 50s, uh, the days of, of Joe D and, and, and Yogi Berra and, and that crew. Uh, and Yogi Berra, you know, a lot of people understand how good Joe DiMaggio was, but Yogi Berra was, in many cases, the straw that stirred the drink for that team. That, that team really amazed me because, you know, I, I assumed the Yankees would make the list in some incarnation, but that team from 49 to 53, I mean, that was – a really remarkable team. And you mentioned DiMaggio. I mean, he was really on the downslope of his career yeah. and had left in the middle of that streak. And, yep. you know, Mantle showed up, but he was just kind of a, a rookie. He was nowhere near his peak. And um, that team was, if you look at Yankees history and you look at the isolated talent of that team, it wasn't even in the top ten in Yankees history right. in terms of its talent. And, and it was, you know, it wasn't that exciting. In fact, the attendance at Yankee Stadium dropped uh, all of those five years years that they won those titles, but there's been no baseball team that's ever done that, and they yeah. did it with uh, with substandard talent, five in a row. But and a lot of people would ask, and I, I pondered this question too when I was going through the book, is that you know, you did have that period of time for the Yankees in the late 90s and early 2000s, and you had an entity like Derek Jeter who was, you know, coming up and, and really developing his his talents as a captain, and they're not on the list. So well, how did that how did that play out? 
Well, so, all right, so that team, uh, you know, they, they came within, you know, two outs of, of winning, you know, five titles. Yep. Uh, but, no, here's the thing about that team. There's a couple of interesting things. First of all, they didn't win five in a row, and that, right. that's the record, so they didn't make it on that on those grounds. But that's the, the Yankees are fascinating because Derek Teeter, we all recognize him as the captain of the Yankees, but he didn't become captain until 2003. Okay. And, you know, what yeah. is fascinating about that team was it did have one of these captain characters that he wasn't named captain uh, of the team, but it was the person who led that team was Paul O'Neill. And Paul O'Neill really fits the profile of the other captains that I've found. And, you know, I think even beyond the 16 teams that I mentioned down in the the 108 uh, teams that are just behind them, you know, they all have the similar similar qualities. They had one type of leader who fit a very uh, specific set of criteria and and personality traits. And O'Neill was a perfect example of that. you do have, in terms of North American sports, you do have three of the uh, of the greatest teams of the last, you know, 70, 80 years on here. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, back many years ago, Maurice Richard, a legendary hockey player. Uh, the Celtics, back in the days with Bill Russell and Cousy and, and that group, had, but what Russell meant to that team and all the championships that they won. And then the 70s Steelers, who won four championships in six years, if memory serves me. But And you pick out Jack Lambert from that team, the middle linebacker, as that guy, as that 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 glue in, in that team. He's such a amazing example. So Lambert, you know, was was uh, famous for being an intimidator, and yep. yeah, he, he had the missing teeth, and he, you know, he would pound quarterbacks, you know, when they were trying to run out of bounds. And, and he was only about two hundred and fifteen pounds or something that's like the that. Thing that's incredible. He was undersized. Yeah. I mean, he was not fast. He was not particularly strong. He he was an undersized linebacker, and everyone forgets that because his persona was so large and he was so uh, intimidating. But no, he was not a great athlete. But what he had was uh, this incredible toughness, but also um, he, he was a master, I and mean, he was a master of um, you know motivation. But you know, motivation. What I realized when I looked at these captains is not what we think it is. It's not big speeches. Uh, it, it's it's a communication style. Lambert really talked to his teammates and and critiqued them in the moment, and was very communicative in the locker room. On the field, not so much. Not really yeah. a holler guy. Um, but he was also a master of this um, nonverbal uh, uh, communication skill that all these captains had. And my favorite Lambert story was it kind of tells you something about him. All the things he did that, that were seemed unhinged on the field were really tactical. They, he sure. did them on purpose. And yeah. My favorite story about Lambert was in a, in a game against Cincinnati. The team had started out um, one and four, and they were really being written off. And he played this incredible game. But in the middle of the game, he had a cut on his hand. And the cut opened up and, and just started spurting blood all over his uniform. And, you know, I asked the trainers why they didn't change the bandages or why he didn't change his uniform at halftime. And they said, they just laughed and said, oh, we never would have even asked Lambert. He loved having blood on his uniform. He knew the message it would send to the team. And yeah. uh, so, you know, he was he was uh, really uh, an incredibly gifted leader, but not necessarily in the ways that we uh, envision. We are talking with Sam Walker. The book is The Captain Class, out now, uh, available for pickup in bookstores and online. Great book about the great teams and the great leaders of those teams in sport over the years. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in and uh, talk about maybe your favorite team. 844-942-7866. Uh, 
one of the great moments in, in U.S. sports history is the U.S. hockey team beating the Russians in 1980 in, in uh, Lake Placid uh, at the Olympics. You have the Soviet Union hockey team on here, but post them losing to the U.S. team and the run that they went on after losing what what a lot of people was, or well, at least a lot of Russians consider to be one of the more humiliating losses in the history of Soviet sport. Such a great example of, of how teams work. So this the Russian team had always been the class of the world. And, you know, obviously that was this massive humiliation that loss, not just to the Americans, but, you know, to an American collegiate team. Yeah. Uh, so it was a huge humiliation. And, you know, that team was exposed at that point and had a lot of veterans and uh, older players, and, and they were t- they just, you know, choked. And, and yeah. they needed to, uh, you know, this is, this is a moment when a team would generally implode, right? I mean, this is, uh, I had a new coach, and the players didn't like the coach. And uh, anyway, so they lose this, they lose this game, and, and they're really in a state of turmoil. Now, after the match, the, the coach, Victor Tikhanov, told the team, they're all very worried about what would happen to them in Moscow, and he told them, look, you know, the story we're going to tell is that we lost as a team, we all share the blame equally. So that was what he said. So now they get on the plane, and they're flying back to Moscow. This story had never really been told before, but they're on the plane, and Tikhanov is huddled with his assistants in the first-class cabin, and he's telling a very different story. He's talking about all the individual players he thought were done, and cost them the, the medal, and really ragging on them. And uh, unbeknownst to him, there was a player, a veteran uh, defenseman on the team named Valery Vasilyev. And Vasilyev overheard everything he was saying. And uh, i got to set the scene for you. Here's an airplane, and you've got all the the coaches, but you've also got all these Politburo officials and Soviet communist uh, officials on on board the plane. Vasilyev heard what his coach said, which went against what he had told the team. And he ran over and grabbed Tikhanov by the neck and started shaking him and threatened to throw him off the airplane if he didn't take back what he said. Uh, so this was like a one-way ticket to Siberia, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is an incredibly uh, brave thing that he did. Now, what was fascinating, though, is that they didn't kick him off the team, and they didn't send him to Siberia. In fact, a few months later, when the players were asked to elect a new captain, they, they voted for Vasilyev and taken off in the Kremlin let the decision stand, and it just made no sense to me. Then they <laughs> went on this incredible run where they were absolutely unstoppable, and they just didn't lose, and they beat this team of NHL All-Stars 8-1, to one, a team yeah. that had Gretzky on it, you know, and all these great players. So what I found in the end in talking to his teammates was that Vasiliev, this is the thing about these captains, so they often did dissenting things and it introduced conflict onto the team, but yeah. what, they, what he did was after that incident, he never mentioned it publicly, he showed up at practice, kept talking to the coach, kept doing his job, kept working with the other players. And what I realized was that the conflict that these captains introduced was never personal. This wasn't a personal attack on his coach. It was really about making sure the team stayed unified in a tough moment. And, you know, not only did they stay unified, it actually improved and got better. And with Vasiliev as their leader, um, they achieved one of the greatest runs in sports history. And I just thought that was a a great illustration of, um, you know, the the importance of leadership. I I wanted to finish up with the U.S. women's soccer team because obviously what we know now about women in soccer the United States was really started in the in the mid 90s into the late 90s and obviously them winning the World Cup 
in uh, in uh, in the the end stretch of their time. Uh, they are the reason why women's soccer grew in the United States over the last fifteen years. They're an incredible story, and that team has a great history of leadership that hasn't really been told. And yeah. the thing that's shocking about that team is, think about that 99 team, right? I mean, who was on that team? Mia Hamm, yep. Julie Foudy, you know, Brandi Chastain. I mean, they were really telegenic, incredible sports personalities that we all remember. So who's the captain of that team? It was someone named Carla Overbeck. Yep. And no one remembers her because, you know, and I realized when I started looking into it and I went and met her, this was not an act. Carla Overbeck was like a lot of these captains. She was not a star. She was a role player. She was someone who did nothing but serve the team in a very subordinate role. She uh, never scored. She didn't do anything flashy. She absolutely played her role in central defense. Um, But she also uh, didn't want individual accolades. And that was the interesting thing about these captains. None of them were out front. None of them were charismatic celebrities. They were people who really dwelled in the shadows. And my famous story about her was that, you know, a couple of things. One was, you know, they would go on these long road trips, you know, to Norway or whatever, and they'd get off the plane, and they'd get to their hotel, and, and Carla Overbeck would carry everyone's bags to their hotel room uh, <laughs> for them. Yeah, she's the captain, and she's carrying the luggage. You know, and she uh, also, after they won the World Cup, you know, they were invited to this big rally in midtown Manhattan, and they all showed up, and they did Letterman, and they, they were celebrated all over. She flew home and didn't want any part of it. And I asked her what she did that day, and she said, I was home. I did three loads of laundry. That's the way she wanted it. And but the fact is she played like a lot of these captains behind the scenes. Her leadership was quiet. She led from the back and allowed everybody else to shine. And yeah. That was um, that was the force that drove that team. It gave her the opportunity to really ride her players and her teammates hard yeah. when they um, weren't performing and to encourage them forward. But everyone understood that her leadership was genuine and that she put the team first above everything else. Great having you on the show, Sam. Thanks very much. It's a fantastic book. Thank you, Thank sir. You, Dan. Thank you. It. Captain Class is the name of the book, the hidden force behind, or I should say, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest team. Sam Walker from the Wall Street Journal. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.